All right, y'all. Good to be back. Been a bit, of, been a minute. Um, no good excuse other than we've just been busy and haven't made the time to put these podcasts out there. So very sorry about that, but we're going to do our best to really kind of get going here. Very quick announcement. So then we'll get on with today's episode where we talk uh, about a couple different papers that, that came out recently. Um, we have our Memorial Day podcast coming up. If you didn't listen to last year's podcast, would love for you to kind of go back and, and give those a listen. We put a lot of thought and time and effort into those, and it's something that we want to really kind of do year over year. And so we wanted to just put it out there. We've got a couple guests coming on this year that are going to be awesome, but also wanted to provide you with an opportunity to memorialize a friend or family member that may have lost their life serving our country in combat. So feel free to shoot us an email at info at owensrecoveryscience.com if you have a story that you would like for us to tell on on air we, we might not do it this year we might do it you know the next year just depends on how long things go but wanted to just kind of get that out there and know that we appreciate the sacrifices of those that are close to you so without further ado we got some cool intro music and then podcast this is the owens recovery science podcast Count us in, Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. Once, dos, tres, whatever you say. This is not you two song. Oh my God. That's definitely going in. That's going in. (laughs) From the guy with a Mexican wife. I think it's German. It's a two song. I don't know. No, it's not. He he goes from three to 14. It's the dumbest thing ever. The torso oh, really? is 14. Yeah. Yeah. That's like come the on. come on. That's like, <laughs> that, that was like the, the guy that we had in our unit over in Iraq. He, he was he ended up marrying this Hispanic girl. He's from Texas, uh, but he didn't know Spanish and he, his last name is Gomez. And so uh, <laughs> yeah. he, he didn't he couldn't read uh Spanish, so he had to have our other guy, Malinato read his letters from his fiance or his girlfriend to, uh, no way oh yeah, my yeah, goodness was, was, that's was, a slippery slope right it was crazy it was crazy yeah it says she is leaving here for uh, <laughs> some other he needs to have his last name revoked <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm going to be in France and my buddy, uh, his brother lives over there. So I reached out. I was like, hey, man, where's your bro live? Maybe we can hook up. And anyways, he's talking. He's like, man, the part of France you're in, you don't really have to, you know, be hardcore and understand French because they all speak Spanish. So you can just speak Spanish with a lot of them. I'm like, well, hell, man, now I got to freaking learn Spanish. Amazing. All right, man. Y'all ready? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, back to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to another Owns Recovery Science podcast. It's been a minute since we've had the whole team on here. I, I think Ben said it's it's been like almost eight months since he and Zach have, have been on one of our podcasts. So they might suck today. Uh, but Kyle and I are well seasoned, man. We we've been knocking these bad boys out. All although we've had a break, man, for a little bit because life's yeah. been busy. So um, anyways, today we're going to 
to break down uh, two new papers that have come out that kind of build on a couple of last podcasts we've had. So I, I think it's going to be pretty cool. So um, we were supposed to record this yesterday and I lost my voice because, you know, I, I, I've lost my training legs, guys. I did two courses within 10 days and then I couldn't speak for two days after that. So, um, I, I, you know, I can't do it like you guys do it anymore. That's your, your chronic load is way down, Johnny. You got to get your <laughs> chronic load up. You know? I, I don't know if I can do I'm old, man. I'm old. That's my problem. Look, here's how old I am. Today's a terrible day because tomorrow I got my colonoscopy. Oh, my first no. Ever. <laughs> oh, oh, no. I'm about to be violated. I'm on a liquid diet. I'm, I'm about to start cleansing the the old system tonight so uh man this is this is gonna be rough yeah yeah my wife's been through one and so she's she's been filling me in on how bad it's gonna be this evening i'm worried because she's my ride and she had one done because she had some stomach stuff and when i went to recovery her tongue was hanging out the side of her mouth like a dog like a dead dog so i took a picture of it when she was laying there and uh that's bad enough but then i sent it out to the family so uh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah payback coming yeah, uh, yeah so we're about to see it's been rough you know because i haven't been to a doctor for anything in like 20 years other than like sinus issues you know and so i got hit with everything all at once you know they, they did the the finger thing um yeah where they 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 do that thing wait explain Um, explain that to us johnny you'll you'll find out kyle it was terrible because i've never been been through that (laughs) stuff has never gone that direction in that area on my in my life you know other than when i was in korea there was a bidet in my bathroom so that's probably the closest thing i've ever been to to that sensation yeah they make you turn your toes in bend over so violated I got my damn pneumonia shot. Um, I've got an ARP subscription for real now because I'm a registered. So I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart. Falling apart. But I'll see if I can get some good pictures of the procedure tomorrow. We'll put it on our website. Yeah, that's, I really look forward to those text messages. Yeah, so this is the the next IP study, out. right? Yeah. This yeah. Is the... <laughs> you know, we got a we got a burger chain out here called In and Out. Yeah, the, the, oh, the worst, yeah, the worst name ever for a. Food organization. Cool. Well, a lot has happened since our last podcast. And so we're going to start being a lot more frequent with this. Lots of papers. Talked to Brad Lambert the other day. The ACL Methodist studies finally yeah. accepted. I think it's sports health. Been talking about that one forever. Um, so it's cool. His, his baseball college pitcher study is out with interesting results. Maybe fastballs got faster, but he won't, he, he won't fess up to that. Although it is in the paper itself. Yeah. Um, We've got a heart failure and COVID paper in review right now, Frontiers in Physiology, with some initial pilot data. We've got a sarcopenia review paper in review right now. We've got too many book chapters to freaking talk about. Kyle reminded me of one the other day we worked on and totally forgot about. I think four different chapters coming out. So stuff's stuff's crazy. Um, if you want to hear a recent pod, I think, I think all of us have done several, but I did one for the Journal of Arthroscopy. Um, so again, it's kind of from an orthopedic surgeon's take, and it, I, th- I think that's a pretty good pod. So go to our website. I think it just came out uh, recently, and we put it on there. So anything you guys want to plug or, or think about before we roll into these papers? 
No, we're pretty boring, Johnny. I think yeah. anyone else, you know, anyone else yeah. going to be presenting at a conference in Lyon, France in June? No, no, we're <laughs> yeah. not. Johnny. We yeah, sure maybe. aren't. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, enjoy the travel. I'm sure you're in for, uh, you know, unless you got some ways to build your chronic load there. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to learn. Where's the bathroom and more wine, please, in French? My two sayings. All right, so let we'll roll into this. So um, the first one is from our friends out at Connecticut Children's. And so if you go back, I, I, I should have got the podcast number, but in the earlier podcast we did, we start talking about can we do blood flow restriction in pediatric patients? And so there's a, a trial going on right now at Connecticut Children's. There's a trial going on at Andrews Children's in Dallas. There's a trial going on at Atlanta Children's. Um, is, is Texas Children's been? Are they doing a trial as well that you know of? I don't, I don't know if they have any registered trials going on. I know they've been okay. doing it a fair amount. And when I was over there the other day, I told them they needed to push some stuff out as well. So hopefully they'll, they'll get some publications okay. going. Okay. There's no published papers with BFR and pediatrics. And so that's always a barrier. You know, kids' muscles, pretty similar to adult muscle, although theirs just responds way better. Um, nothing, nothing heals like youth, but you have to do the safety study first. And so good on Adam Weaver and, the, and those folks out there, Connecticut Children's, because they first did, is this safe? And also, is it even feasible? Will little kids do it um, at all? Because like I said, my daughters are wussies. When I try and, you know, put BFR on them, they're like barbecued chickens freaking out and get it off, get it off. So they can't do it. Um, but, but this paper did um, apply it on, on, on kids. Uh, the average age was 15. Um, from spanning from 12 year old up to 18 year old, they started blood flow restriction after quad tendon ACLs um, on an average of 8.7 days out. So about you know, so about eight to nine days out is when they started it, which kind of lines up with with what we're seeing with all these trials. Started within about the first week to 10 days, um, and they did it on 29 kids, which is which is fine for a pilot feasibility study, just so we can look at. You know, have, have, were there any side effects, were there adverse events, and was it tolerable? And, and I think what's cool is they logged how many sessions were done. So on these yeah. kids, they did 535 blood flow restriction sessions. And so from that, they wanted to look at two major adverse events, which are kind of some of the common ones. One, did they cause clots? That's that's big, big question for everyone. Did they see any DVTs that, that occurred from this? And then was there any sort of vascular damage that might have happened? So was there any sub-Q hemorrhage that they noticed within the limb or under the cuff? And both of those was a big goose egg. So didn't see any signs of clots, didn't see any signs of sub-Q hemorrhage. So there are major adverse events, there were none. Their second was, were there any minor side effects? And so really the only minor side effect they had was itchiness that folks had some sort of um, kind of itchiness when they did it, or these kiddos did, but there was only that 8% was from two kids. Um, so it was really only two of the 29 that were having issues with it. Um, the third or the second, I'm sorry, side effect was some lower extremity paresthesia. We'll, we'll discuss this itchiness, lower extremity paresthesia, et cetera, about 3%. Um, and then there was, there was one report, I guess, of dizziness, 0.75%. Um, so before we roll into tolerance, let's just kind of discuss, you know, 
why those minor side effects might occur if, if people aren't kind of used to that and if you guys want to discuss anything on adverse effects. So you guys have any thoughts on that? I think getting into the itchiness, we get this asked a lot. So I know Zach, you kind of looked into this itchiness. Like why would you get itchiness when you do blood flow restriction? Yeah, we tend to think it is really driven from a histamine response. Um, maybe some people are just allergic to exercise. Um, <laughs> ultimately what it seems to come down to. Um, and it definitely seems to be more noticeable um, in some people than others. And I think that's kind of what you know, Adam and Nick found with this, um, they had, um, 42 complaints of it, but it was really made up of, um, from two people. Um, so it doesn't happen to everybody. Um, but the folks that it does happen to, it seems to be consistent. Um, and it happens, you know, regularly with them. Um, I I've had a, a guy one time, man, as soon as we literally inflated the cuff before even starting to do exercise, you inflate the cuff and he just starts to scratch his leg. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I wonder like my wife, when she exercises, she gets that, you know, like it, it, she goes nuts whenever she's yeah. doing like so, any aerobics. So, and so I wonder if there's a, just a, a predisposition. Yeah, that was the, the one thing that we kind of went back to was ultimately, you know, it, it goes back to people with general exercise having excessive histamine response just, just to exercising. Um, and we just kind of thought maybe, you know, BFR may kind of provoke that a little bit more or, you know, that, that's when they notice it with us in the clinic. Yeah. I had a clinician reach out about it with someone who was, it really was driving them nuts when they did it and asked if they should take antihistamines before they come in and do BFR. But I was like, well, they might be just passed out on the table if they do that. Um, so we don't, we don't know. I think yeah. also we see this, this purpurea and we petechia as well, um, where yeah. you get these little spots. So I like itch. Who, who cares if you itch during it, you know, just, just deal with it. But you know, I know one patient uh, that was being seen out in LA was kind of worked up because this petechia had lasted for several days. So I don't know. Did you see like when you're looking at that, was that petechia something that we see? And petechia is like you get all these little bumpy red spots on your leg. Um, is that something that we think would be a histamine drive as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it potentially could be. Um, and in my experience, I've, I've never had a patient with it. I've had it during the labs, like teaching a course, and I've had people reach out about it. And when it comes to uh, in, in the course, I would say it's pretty much almost all resolved by the end of the day. Um, nothing really has lingered. Um, and then uh, the one therapist that reached out about it said a, um, roughly 80% uh, of it was gone by the end of the treatment. Um, so yeah. uh, again, it could you know, be a, a histamine response, something is getting provoked and then it's kind of there. And then once you remove the stimulus, um, it resolved. Yeah. I went down that wormhole trying to figure that thing out one over a couple It was at Georgia's place, right? Your old clinic. Yeah. Yeah. My old, my old clinic. Um, but you know, and not, it wasn't the first report we had had of that going on. Um, and every, every report prior to that, and including that one, um, I, I came to find out is that it was a one-time thing. Like it did not occur a second time. So if you, if you see that, uh, it, it's been our experience at least, um, that it, it, it does not recur. Um, and there, there was some, 
a little bit of literature just like on from the tourniquet side maybe kind of pointing to some capillary fragility or something like that if i if i remember correctly yeah and they yeah. were thinking there were like these little small kind of hemorrhages um but didn't doesn't seem to be like um something that is concerning for like an underlying condition or, or anything like that best best we could figure out at least so far certainly you know more to be figured out on that front as well but yeah yeah, I hadn't seen as much on a, what I would think of as a true petechia kind of response. I mean, it's typically more of the really short-lived kind of splotchiness that's so different and individual from person to person, depending on, it seems like, you know, the folks that have more fair skin, then you end up getting a little bit more of that discoloration or splotchiness that shows up during, during BFR, you know, definitely seen some of that itchiness, but not real consistently. So, Yeah. Well, if this is the biggest problem they had in kids doing this out of 535 sessions was a little bit of itchiness in two of them. I think that, that that's pretty, that's pretty dope um, from a safety profile. The other one was the lower extremity paresthesia and about 3% reported that they did have this kind of paresthesia that you get. And, and, and that's common. And I, you know, I've had some people say, well, you know, you talk about tourniquets, one of their big concerns is potential nerve damage and you're saying it's okay if while you're doing it, your leg and, you know, it's a lot of times when I do it, the bottom of my foot goes numb. Um, and so that's okay. And so have you guys talked to anyone about that or have people come at you with that? Yeah. Um, I, I tend to look at paresthesias as um, kind of a graded scale almost like tingling. I'm okay with numbness, not so much. We need to deflate the cuff. And when with the tingling, it, I, I always tell people it's more of a subjective complaint, such as how bad is the tingling? Is, is it really bad or is it just tingling a little bit? Because, you know, and then the, the final question is, where is the tingling at? Almost always it's on the whole distal aspect of the limb, whether that be the hand um, yeah. or like the lower leg. If that's the case, I'm probably thinking the tingling is a result of the reduction of blood flow versus the compression of a nerve um, yeah. versus if, if they would say, oh, it's in such and such place and that, that follows more of a dermatomal pattern. At that point in time, that would indicate to me that, um, you know, we're maybe compressing on a nerve and we need to either deflate the cuff, decrease the pressure, shift the cuff, move the cuff around. Um, yeah, that's a great yeah. point. I've never seen a dermatomal pattern as well yeah. um, in anyone. It, it is almost always lower leg or my, my hand. Yeah, and, um, and, it's and the usually it's the entire time. hand. It's not, yeah, it's not, yeah, my, yeah. my third and fourth yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then, Point. you know, on the, the clinical side of things, I, I believe we have three papers out, two of which are PhD thesis papers that have specifically looked at nerve conduction velocity, whether it be the H reflex or the M wave. And we see no altered nerve conduction velocity. Um, so uh, yeah, that's just kind of when it comes to the paresthesias. I don't, I tend to think as well, it's not too much of a big deal. Um, as long as we're not getting something in a dermal, dermatomal pattern. And as long as we don't have all that numbness. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, we always want to put this out. Best tourniquet guidelines are use a wide cuff, a wide tapered cuff. Yeah. It requires less pressure and, and that really keeps the nerves happy. We, we avoid these pressure gradients. The more narrow you start to get with these cuffs, um, the higher the pressure gradient, you know, looking back 10 years of tourniquet use in the battlefield, the number one disability driver from it 
was nerve damage because on the battlefield, you have to wear, use these real thin, narrow cuffs. But you see clinicians using real thin, narrow cuffs all the time. They just probably don't take the pressure up high enough to, to be too dangerous. But that also means they're probably not really doing BFR. Or, the, or like a wrap or something like that. I mean, I have you know concern over those things too because you end up with a potentially a pretty narrow gradient with that as well. You know, so yeah, um, yeah something that you can... Anything you can do to reduce the amount of pressure you're delivering to that limb is, I mean, it's inherently yeah. going to reduce risk and, and, and probably I would say reduce perceptual responses and, and things like that as well, which yeah. is certainly kind of go into, well, is it tolerated? If it's not tolerated, then at some level, the responsibility is on the clinician to make it tolerable, you know? Yeah. You know, that's that's our job that's our skill that's what we get paid for so do your work you know yeah 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 with these well it, per- paresthesia kind of sensations i mean it definitely seems a lot more frequent on upper extremity than on a lower extremity you know for me the yeah. times that i've seen it yeah. on lower I, I almost wonder if there's something positional as well i see it more so if somebody's sitting off the edge of a table if they're in a yeah. dependent position you know i wonder yeah. if just that that itself also affects it because you don't see it when somebody's on the table doing bridges or, or straight leg raises, something like that, or at least I don't typically see that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, well, and that's the one ahead, trick. That's the one trick too, Ben. Um, even in the upper extremity, my experience with it is it almost always happens like during a prone exercise, such as we'll say like a, a prone abduction and it's mm-hmm. during the rest period. Yeah. Whenever they keep their arm down, um, before even changing any of the parameters with the cuff, the pressure, the whatever, I just have people put their arm and rest it on the table above their head. And that will either almost always make it tolerable or uh, significantly better, or it gets rid of it completely. Um, so it's, it's really when the arm or the limb is down um, that I've noticed it. Yeah. And when we started at the DOD, we were using 80% pressures in the upper extremity. So we were causing a lot of hypoxia and people's hand would, they could barely hold on to the weight anymore. And again, it wasn't dermatomo. It was just like, man, my hand is like tingling and going crazy and I can't hold on to, hold on to this. So thank God, it seems like 50% works or we wouldn't be able to, to get a lot of this. So good. All right. Well, that's easy. The last one, um, one case of dizziness, not a case of syncope or fainting, but but did feel dizzy. And so that's the one thing, you know, I, we've had it reported and we've seen it, you know, these potential, like almost passing out things, you know, Ben and I saw one, we're up there at the Steelers. It was, it was almost kind of scary. Um, this person like going into the syncope episode and almost like a mini seizure type thing. But, um, we, we kind of figured out and they did some testing. This person was really, really dehydrated. So it might've just been the, a reperfusion type effect, but dizziness can happen. And that's why when you do blood flow restriction, especially when you're first started on someone, you got to make sure they can tolerate it, be there around them because on cuff deflation, when you get reperfusion or just while they're going through it, there's a, we think it's probably more of a vasovagal and athletes have a higher vasovagal response. I had a NHL hockey player pass out. Um, it was probably because he had a PRP done and he said he was afraid of needles, but um, we were doing the BFR and PRP kind of protocol with them. So any other thoughts you guys have on that dizziness or potential sin coping? Yeah. And the yeah. other surveys that have been done, sorry, Ben, that's been yeah. reported globally. So it's, that is a, that is something that we all need to be aware of. And it seems like every clinician 
has, if they do this a lot, has, has potentially seen that. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say the times that I've seen the dizziness, you know, I, I definitely have to think that um, dehydration is a factor. I mean, I, for one, I just assume everyone's dehydrated, but also, I mean, it's, I've seen it more frequently in students than anything else. You know, it's like I probably haven't had enough sleep, been up drinking too much coffee, studying, and then, yeah. you know, people are, are holding their breath while they're doing exercise, like they're power lifting. And all of a sudden you get, you get dizzy toward the end of that. So, um, yeah. The very first presentation that I ever did on BFR was with Ben at Hardin-Simmons University. And the first person we put it on got, got, got dizzy and nearly fainted on us. And we we're yeah. looking at each other like, that's never happened to us. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, but then we got talking to the girl. She hadn't had breakfast. She was hopped up on coffee. Um, yep. And... Uh, it was just kind of like, okay, well, he probably didn't have any business doing any kind of exercise at all. Um, yeah. Well, that's what, that's what happened with Ben and I. It was the first one up there. And then we get down, we're like, okay, cool. Who's next? It's a great way to start a lab, man. It's yeah. like, okay, the yeah. first person just passes out on us. It's like, yeah, yeah. all right. Yeah. We swear this yeah. is safe, guys. Like y'all yeah. should, <laughs> should try this. It's, yeah. I wanted to ask y'all because I was looking at their methods um, and kind of thinking about, you know, how many, because I, I, when I was looking at the numbers, I thought it actually kind of surprised me how many, or excuse me, um, how many instances of like the numbness and, and all these different things that they had. But, but I, I think in looking at how they did things, they were gathering that data after every exercise that they did. So you had three data points for every visit because they were doing mm -hmm. three, exercises. Yeah, three exercises. So, um, and I, I'm be, it's super curious to know if those two people that were having the, the numbness, right. That was what we were talking about. The numbness that was the uh, two people. I think. Itch itchiness, itchiness. Um, I, I'd be very curious if it was kind of like those first few visits and then it attenuated or did it have something to do mm -hmm. with the change in exercise or change in load? You know, did those things kind of affect it as well? Um, yeah. So that was just kind of a, a thought I had and, and just sort of looking at how they went about doing this paper and capturing that information. So, yeah. Well, I think overall we can say from a safety profile from 535 sessions with these 29 kids, yep. we see nothing at all that would say don't do it. So, the, the next thing is the tolerance profile. Can kids even do it? Um, average age 15. And so only three basically tapped out of those 29 and, and weren't able to do it. And so, you know, that's, that's probably kind of aligns with where we're seeing it in the adult kind of population as well. Um, you're getting this kind of tap out effect. And then about three and a half percent, they just had to lower the LOP. So any thoughts from you guys on, on that? Yeah, I pretty straight. They, um, in the, uh, when they talked about like the failure or the uh, inability to finish, they, they noted like in the discussion aspect of it, that ultimately they included in that the people who failed as a result of the exercise who failed within say the third set of 15 and whatnot. So potentially that initial number of unable to complete may actually be, be an overestimation of um, kind of a precaution type of a deal. It may just be the effect of the exercise. 
Um, so, yeah, yep. which is ultimately kind of what you want. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they, they pointed out on the discussion. I was like, yeah, that's kind of what yeah. we're going for here. Yeah. yeah. I was going to yeah. say that they need to get those numbers up a little bit, I think, you know, just to <laughs> make it to where more people can't finish all 75 yeah. reps. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they hit fatigue. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Yeah, and I, I keep going back to your point. Oh, go ahead, Kyle. No, that's all right. Go ahead. I'll jump in after. Getting back, we didn't really go into their protocol, uh, but it, it's pretty much standard if you follow us or if you've been trained by us. 80% LLP, which was – good and interesting they use a high pressure and these kids in general i mean they only had to decrease that pressure in three and a half percent of them so you're talking a little over a week post-op acl and and they're going right at and, and hitting 80 percent lop and three exercises you know and so that ain't easy if and, and they progressed them so they started kind of with the basic exercises and then started getting into things like leg press so each week they they progress those exercises and if anyone's ever done three BFR exercises at 80% LOP, you're, you're smoked. That's, that's some serious work. So, so good on these, these kids for, for being able to do that. Um, and then of course they followed kind of the same thing, 30, 15, 15, 15 with 30 second rest periods. So standard kind of protocol, but uh, very tolerable for all these little kiddos. So, and I guess to point out, everyone's always, how do you find your one RM for this? They use the Omni rest scale. And I, I I think we've talked about OmniRes enough, but it's an RPE scale. You can go to PubMed and just put in OmniRes. It's been validated. There are several papers that have looked at it. So instead of finding a 1RM, you basically have your folks do the exercise and tell you where that's at around a two or three on an RPE scale. And that's a good starting point. Cool. Any thoughts on, on the protocol? Pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. Cool. 5050 uh, split male and females, which is great to see in the research pretty much. And overall, you can say that 90% were able to do it. They did point out in their intro, I didn't know this, there's a 35% re-injury rate in pediatric ACLs. That sucks. That's high. And so that's their reason for in adopting blood flow restriction there. And I know a lot of the other institutions, obviously that's why we do it because Kids getting their quad strength back, their thigh strength back is huge to their recovery. Any final thoughts on this study? I, I did like in their discussion, um, they said BFRT pressure, duration of inflation, and cuff width are three modifiable variables that may influence the likelihood of adverse events with BFR. I mean, those are yeah. three things that we as clinicians can manipulate and change to gradually expose someone to this intervention and beginning early and kind of getting where we need to get. I think we hear a lot just from the talking heads, if you will, that, oh, this 80% pressure, people can't tolerate it and this and that. I'm like, no, garbage. That just tells me you're not being a clinician. You know, yeah. you need to be modifying these things that you have the ability to modify and eventually get your patient to the point that they can perform this exercise in a way that we know leads to adaptation ultimately. Um, I then, I, I was also a, a little troubled in their analysis. Their analysis began with results were analyzed using Microsoft Excel. And I just, I, you're triggered. I, I know I you're triggered. triggered. <laughs> I can't, uh, I, I, I have, 
and a hate hate relationship with Microsoft Excel and Adobe Acrobat. And I was just, it was hard for me to read on after I read yeah. that, but I, I powered through. So I just Great. wanted P- PTSD is real, Kyle. It's a real thing, man. <laughs> so I believe so, it. I yeah. It from yeah. <laughs> Anytime we have Kyle do anything, we say, keep put that in a spreadsheet for us. He like basically gets one of those syncopy episodes we we're talking about earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <fill> them out. <laughs> See him curl up into a little ball. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and so this was a safety study, and a again great on on these folks and our friends there for getting this out there. First published BFR PEDS paper there is, um, and so it looks like it is safe and tolerable in at least this age population for post-op ACL. Um, again, you've got all those variables that, that you can control for in this and. So their next phase is they're continuing with their clinical trial. And so we are waiting, uh, excited to see what their results are going to be now, looking at outcomes and with strength and, and, and things like that and function and pain. And they, they kind of, I saw on social that I think Adam or someone kind of teased, you know, we're already seeing a 30 something percent improvement in strength scores versus control group. Did you guys oh, see that? I didn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was, I was like, well, did you already publish that paper? Um, is that coming? But it looks like maybe they're already trending in the right direction, which is fantastic. Cool. If you use Delphi systems, these cuffs are rated for pediatrics. Um, they're rated for pediatric surgery. So um, these cuffs are also, they're, they're not just for adults that we use. They're, they can be used in pediatric situations. And that's what they used here. All right. Cool. No kids freaked out. Only got a little bit of itching. No big deal, man. Just just scratch, my little man. Scratch. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Hope you don't get some petechia. All right. <laughs> the next paper is another follow-up one. And this is a survey study. So um, if you listen to our podcast that we did on MS, multiple sclerosis, with Dr. Menajo from um, from University of Colorado. I'm just going to say Mark because I, I always I probably butchered his last name. Maniago. Uh, Maniago. Maniago. It's the Indian Spanish, man. I'm going to be on. in France. I'm going to be falling apart because I can't even speak Spanish. Um, <laughs> this was a survey on BFR practitioners and do you use BFR in neuro populations? Again, there's not enough neuro studies in blood flow restriction. So what Mark wanted to do here was get a just a, a general kind of consensus in the clinical landscape of are you guys using it in this population and do we need to start doing some more research? Um, to, to make you want to do it in this population. I'm, I'm on it as well. And Mr. Kyle Kimball's on this as well, man. Congratulations. What is that, number two? Number two. Number two. And your, your research gate, it's probably like I, point, 0.5 right now. Yeah. I don't even know how to get one of those. Yeah, you might have to wait out a little bit. Yeah, um, probably. Right, I bet you could now having a couple published. Really? So, yeah, I'll send. I'll send, you, a, I'll send, I'll, you I'll send a request. Be like, please, may I have a, a research gate? The good thing on research gate is you can get some of these papers early. You know, the clinicians all or researchers all put their stuff out there, and you can request for them to send it to you. Yeah, cool. Um, all right, so this was not the largest survey done, but you know, not not terrible. It's 112. BFR practitioners were surveyed on their use of blood flow restriction for neuro conditions and asked them, are you doing it? 
who are you doing it on? What's the problems that you've seen? What are the kind of outcomes that you've seen with this? And so out of those 112, 89% said that they thought that BFR would be at least safe to do a neuropopulation. So about 90%, um, which is interesting. We have a really large survey study um, that we just finished. That was um, Dr. Brendan Scott out of Murdoch University in Australia um, was the lead on it. Stephen Patterson's on it as well. And it's that number is completely different when you're looking at this from a global scale. So this is just the United States. So, you know, we've adopted buffalo restriction clinically, I think more than, than most countries. And so maybe we have people that are a little more, um, you know, kind of accustomed to do it and then feel comfortable doing it on people. They, uh, the hypothesis was set that 25% of the people asked would say they are doing blood flow restriction on patients with neurologic neurologic um, diagnoses. And so what they found out of that 112 was not only 90% say, yes, we think it's safe, but uh, 38%, so around 40% said, yeah, and we're doing it on neurologic patients. Um, the most common use for blood flow restriction was to use it for resistance training um, in neuro populations. Number two was using it for aerobic training. And then we can go into it here a little bit. There was about 10% or so of all these other uses, using it for functional training, balance training, passive use, et cetera. Um, the most improved outcome that folks saw was improved strength in these people. And then just really no adverse effects at all that were really reported. There were some minor side effects. So uh, the number one side effect in neurologic populations was that they couldn't tolerate the LOP. Again, that's a modifiable thing that you as a clinician can do. The second one was that there was severe fatigue in, in five reported um, episodes. The third was there was severe pain. And then the, the last one side effect was that there was some severe muscle soreness. Um, and, and Mark used the word severe, so it makes it seem more serious, but, but that's um, not a lot there. So really minimal side effect or uh, things to really worry about. And the most common report of why you are doing it on neuro or, or what would you want to see? And, and 63 of 112 people said, we, we would like to see more neuro research. So that being said, and we can break down the different types of neurologic uh, uses of blood flow restriction, which some of them were kind of interesting to me. Um, but you guys start rolling in of your thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think there can definitely be a use. And I, I know Kyle has said this before, uh, something we talk about in the course as well is getting away from this idea of does BFR work for a, a given diagnosis, you yeah. know, the, in the grand scheme of things, it, it very well might help with specific diagnosis, but then you have to look at the whole picture. Um, you know, one of the MS trials that's out there is literally just looking at um, gate speed and, you know, can we, can we do walking on, on a treadmill at a relatively low intensity um, over a six week period and then detrain or just stop training and do a follow-up six weeks later. And what we see from that is a, 0.12 meter per second increase, which I think to a lot yeah. of orthopedic and sports medicine folks, that doesn't sound like a, a significant increase, but there was a study done in 2020 out of the University of Pittsburgh by Schumann. And what they showed was that for every, um, what was it, 
point point one point one point no it was less than that it was uh because that it was a point uh point zero six i think is what it was it led to an 11 percent decrease in fall risk so that that study showed that there was ultimately about a 20 percent increase or de- i'm sorry a 20 percent decrease in fall risk and then you you take a look annie bain's paper that she did with parkinson's folks um which is finally in- submitted <laughs> sorry yeah so and and her and, and what she found after four weeks of training was about a 90 foot increase in a six minute walk test. Again, doesn't sound like it's kind of over the top and whatnot, but that same paper from Schumann found that for every 20 meter increase, which is roughly 66 feet, again, there was an 11% reduction in fall risk. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty huge thing that you're able to kind of achieve. Um, and specifically with the MS trial was that result was sustained once the training stopped. So six weeks after we stopped training, um, they still maintain that increase in gait speed. Yeah, it's huge. And, and that point one meter second, I think Colin and I were hitting on was the mortality risk. Mortality was yeah. significantly that, that, that's increased. It. Yeah. 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 And so if you're saying, man, all I got to do is have an MS patient walk on a treadmill for 15 minutes with blood flow restriction over six weeks, and they increase their gait speed by 0.12. Now you're touching on mortality risk. And, and that's like the easiest protocol in the world. Like come in here and walk on this thing for 15 minutes. And so again, we, we, we get hung up sometimes. I'm like, well, can we do this on MS patients? You know, yeah, they, they got a lot of the same, you know, kind of physiologic things that anyone does. You know, I, I think the big concern everyone had was the fatigue. Um, and, and would you get this kind of M, MS kind of rebound type effect where they're really wiped out for days? And it Zach, seems so far like that hasn't been a thing. Zach, have you, uh, have you had an older person walk with BFR on the treadmill? Have you done that before? not not walking the bike yes yeah um we we do a lot yeah. more with the bike in the clinic with older folks um, yeah. but we've done it yeah yeah i then treadmill makes me nervous with older people period um but the bike doesn't make me nervous at all like you know and i would yeah. be a really interesting study to just take older persons or persons with neurologic conditions or something and just do like interval cycling and then see does their gait speed improve or does their six minute walk test improve that's a simple study i'm just throwing it out there anybody can freaking do it you know if you're a pt student and you listen to this podcast i don't know why number one you listen but number two uh hey there's a great study for you to do super easy you know as long as you can find a bunch of old folks to squeeze their legs and make them pedal a bike but um i'm i'm older and i've walked on the yeah johnny you want to be in a study we can, it was, we can it play. was no big deal. I've got an ARP <laughs> subscription. I can give you my membership. And a colonoscopy card. receipt to prove yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. So, no, great points there. And, and so the most common used neurologic conditions that people reported using BFR on were spinal cord injuries and MS. And yeah. those are primarily... Uh, two, of the, two of the neurologic things that we do have some publications on. So there, there is some research to maybe help back that up. Probably the most published in neurologic is, is the idiopathic myositis, the, yeah. the inflammatory muscle wasting diseases. But Mark made a point because I, I, what was it? There was only, yeah, like four people who said they've used it in that. But um, we, I've never seen one of those patients. 
I've talked to a lot of them. I've talked to their society to try and get a grant for a study. Uh, but, but I, you know, he, he said most clinicians really don't see those patients a lot. So that might be why that the most published group we've seen is just because that's where, you know, the special research has gone. So just want to go into the third one was TBI, which was interesting um, that people had reported using it with traumatic brain injury. There's no publications on that yet, although there is a concussion study. I don't know where they stand um, with code and everything, but Duke um, it was doing a, a concussion study with BFR, our our boy, our trainer out in Australia, Adrian Sexton, um, he has done a lot of clinical work with BFR and traumatic brain injury and has seen some really positive results. And he's, he's presented that out in Australia and, and some conferences. So I, I think that could be a good population. Then the fourth was stroke. The fifth was Parkinson's. Inflammatory myopathies was after that. Then muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy, and then three people are reported. I thought that was really interesting. ALS, um, and so I've, I've had that question quite a bit. You know, have you guys seen anything in ALS with this? And so um, they're they're just so debilitated. I'd be interested to see what they used on those folks. Was this a passive application? Passive with BFR? I mean, passive with NMES? Um, any any follow up or thoughts you guys have on on those different diagnoses? I, th I think I would just kind of go back to the, the point Zach made and that I've made um, is that, you know, we, we kind of want to just really think of these folks as in need of adaptation and muscle. And, you know, how can we get BFR to do that? You know, I think um, too often we'll hear maybe a comment like, well, they're not going to be able to keep whatever they get kind of thing because they don't have the communication or, or the function in their nervous system that a normal person might have. But, but I think, you know, like the MS trial showed the pendulum swings too far with muscle a lot of times. And so we need to kind of bring it back. And in the end, last I checked, we're still doing rehab with these people. Um, and we, we still see some value in that person coming to the clinic and doing these things that we're having them do that don't cause adaptation in muscles. So, um, I really kind of in many ways see a ton of upside for neurologic conditions. We got, I know just standing by this poster at, at CSM, I had a bunch of people come by that had actually been using it in people with neurologic conditions already. Um, you know, and, and in most cases it was kind of an overflow from their association with their orthopedic clinic where they had started using BFR and, the conversations just kind of start happening. Like, are y'all doing this? You know, maybe you should kind of think about it. Um, one of the things that um, there's a, an individual, he's come by our, our booth like two or three times now at CSM. And he works a ton with spinal cord injury. And one of the things he was saying to me is they're seeing pain reductions in these people with spinal cord injury. And I don't, I don't really know the, that's the right word I'm looking for. Um, the incidence of, of pain in persons with spinal cord injury, like how much, how much pain do they deal with? Is it something that we even recognize clinically as something that we might, you know, have some interventions for or consider treating in, in that population? Do y'all, do y'all know, have y'all had an experience with that? I have not. So no. I don't see those patients enough to know, and I haven't talked to anyone other than our friends out at, in Colorado. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I, I haven't either. And, and I actually had somebody pose the question to me the other day, you know, would this be beneficial for somebody who's had an amputation and has some of those phantom limb pain type sensations, mm -hmm. you know, would that kind of fit into the same category here? Yeah, we get asked that a lot, you know, because at CFI, we had so many amputees, but we were doing it way more on limb salvage and sports problems than the amputees. Um, and so I don't think we ever did it on someone with phantom limb pain. But right. Yeah. I mean, I, be, I don't, uh, that's a, that's a giant black box, man. It, it, right. We need to at least try it. Right. Well, I mean, I remember applying it to, you know, to the limb with the amputation for, you know, some strength gains and using it, just not inspecting any potential changes for pain or sensation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we did it with some of the complex regional pain syndrome stuff and it was like a 50, 50 mix. Cause we had so much of that with blast trauma. Some people had actually, they're like, Hey, it kind of helped. And then, you know, we had some were like, dude, it made it worse. So I, I, I just don't, we don't have enough probably to know. And that was just a handful of them that we did that on. So going back, um, you know, again, it's a survey. This is retrospective in nature. And so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but reports of, of VTE or DVT, zero syncope episodes, zero Severe swelling, zero. Severe skin irritation, bruising, zero. Sensory changes, paresthesias, zero. Rhabdo, zero. Fall, causing injury, zero. Abnormal shortness of breath, zero. Abnormal change in heart rate or blood pressure, zero. So kind of major things that you might look for in these type of, in these type of patients. No one reported seeing that in, in at least the people who had done it on some neurologic patients. The two diagnoses where people said I am the least comfortable doing this on would be ALS and then the inflammatory myopathy were the two where people said yeah I, I need some serious research before I I start doing it on these populations so I think uh if you're interested in this you know we are very interested in this so we've done pods with Mark on MS and his MS trial um, I'll point out there as well, and I'm, I'm like, I forgot what my title is. I'm like an advisor for him for this or something. He did win the Young Researcher Award for MS by the VA. So he's getting funded to expand his clinical trial, which is awesome because it seems like he's getting some pretty positive results already in, in the pilot that he's doing. We've also done a podcast with Dr. Annie Bain, whose paper we hope comes out on Parkinson's disease. And, and that is a fantastic study as we well. We haven't had Annie Bain on yet. Oh, we did it. We keep thinking that we have had her on because we've talked well, about we talked, her so oh, much. We talked about it. But okay. we're gonna get Annie Bain on um, okay. a podcast yeah. one of these days. I'm, I was she's a, just she's a busy young lady. But she, she is she's but fantastic. She'll be a fun interview, and she'll be cool for everybody to hear. Mark's gonna be on a podcast, by the way, Johnny. He's gonna be on an APTA podcast. I think it's. Um, I don't know if it's the neuro, if the neuro or the neuro academy has a podcast or if it's just the main APTA, but um, he emailed the other day and said that he's going to be doing that. So, you know, we'll, if, if it's out, if I can find it, I'll just link it in the show notes, but um, we'll obviously cool. tweet it out and post it when that nice. comes out too. So. And we've also done the spinal cord injury podcast as yep. well um, with, with some clinicians or some practice not practitioners, but an owner of a nonprofit who they're using it a ton out there in Denver. So if you're interested in, in a little bit more neuro and how people are doing it, we do have those out there. There's quite a few trials that are, that are starting to ramp up in these populations as well. And so I guess putting a bow on all this, 
a study to look at safety in kids. Looks good. They can tolerate it. Looks safe. No reason other than a little itchiness. And then at least a survey in practitioners who have done BFR on neuro patients, the general safety profile looks really good. And also, you know, one of the main outcomes that they saw as improvement was they did see increase in strength in these individuals. Any parting shots? You guys make it, you know, uh, Ben and, and Zach. I know you haven't you know, done anything like this podcast in a while. Y'all good? Yeah, it's, it's nice to be back, you know, get the podcast legs back. You yeah. need to get you out there on more courses, I guess. Get your, your course legs back. <laughs> no, I'm good. Uh, you go to France for a conference and we'll just, just keep teaching yeah. courses. And Yeah, you guys do that. I'm going to I'm gonna pick the international conferences. You know, I'm done with America. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it, it is really cool to see, you know, these these studies come out for, for this survey study. It's it's nice to see that some people are willing to branch out into the, some of these populations that don't have publications because we do get that a lot where it's like, ah, I mean, I don't know. There's nothing on it. And, you know, I, I tend to fall back on the, the conversations that I know we've had with with Larry Kahalen on the muscle hypothesis for some of these patients with, you know, cardiovascular disease and things like that. Well, it's, you know, yeah, we, we kind of still need some muscle in all these folks as well. So maybe just falling back on that at this point in time until people have enough to make them feel comfortable. And I, I, you know, I don't know that we're, we're ever going to have these things for all these diagnoses. So going back to, to Kyle's frequent point of this is not a diagnosis treatment. Yeah. Awesome. All right, boys. I'll make sure to get you pictures from the outside and the inside. After yeah, great. <laughs> great. We're yeah. Pray for me tonight when I start taking my, my poop pills. <laughs> we, now we, I, hey, now I know why we don't have a, a, a meeting tomorrow. I figured it out. I've connected the dots here. Cause yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be laying there with my tongue hanging out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> We should have scheduled right. this for later so Johnny could have done the talk from the, the porcelain throne. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the acoustics are good in there. Uh, yeah. All right, boys. Well, that was an awkward end to a podcast. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. All Signing right. off. As always, right. thanks for listening. Go to orangegraveyscience.com if you want to check out our courses or content. Um, all of our podcasts are on there, including that new John Arthroscopy one that just came out. I think it was pretty good. I, I got some good jokes in, I think. That's all that matters to me. All right. Like, share, subscribe, all that crap. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Thanks, fellas. Yeah. Talk yeah. soon. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PCs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.